The Joy FM Sports presents The Sweet Spot with Corey Bradley. Welcome to The Sweet Spot. I'm your host, Corey Bradley. Thank you for joining us again this week on another exciting show, as we always like to bring interesting and fun sports content that we come across each week. Now, this these last couple of days have been very exciting with some of the news that's taken place. Of course, you have the national championship, the LSU Tigers uh, claimed Monday night over Clemson Tigers. You have the NFC, AFC Conference Championship games being played this week. We'll talk about that. And then there was some huge news that came across the baseball diamond that really hit this area uh, pretty hard with the Atlanta Braves. But I also had to talk about some surprising news as Luke Keekley of the Carolina Panthers decided to retire abruptly uh, at the age of 28. Um, you know, Luke Keekley is one of the best linebackers in the game, just decided to, to not play football anymore. And this is something we, we dealt, with, dealt with last year as uh, Andrew Luck retired. You know, I had my good friend Chris Liuzzi speak on that experience as a Colts fan, what it was like to have your franchise quarterback hang him up for good out of nowhere in his prime that Chris mentioned. And so we've seen Calvin Johnson a few years ago retire as well. You know, this is football is such a dangerous sport. You know, guys, when they get it, they kind of establish themselves in their career, make a great living financially that will set their, their families up for generations to come. I think some of these guys are becoming uh, more wise in that regard to just go ahead and, you know, hang them up before you do some serious damage to your health. And you don't want to be out there playing any sport, especially football, if you're not fully invested mentally and emotionally. Uh, you know, the 30 for 30 uh, documentary with Marcus Dupree, you know, the kind of the best running back who never was, I think they, you know, kind of alluded to. He spoke on how, you know, like kind of his career ending injury. He knew he was going to get hurt that day. Like, he did not want to be out there. He did not want to play. And so, like I said, I don't care what sport it is. It could be basketball, baseball, swimming, golf. If you're not mentally engaged on a on a full level, then there's a chance that you could sustain some type of injury. I, I mean, I speak from my own experience playing football as well. Although it was flag football, it was still, you know, an activity where it takes – um, some physical ability to have there, you know, running around and jumping around and having fun. But that day I tore my patellar tendon in my right knee. I was playing, but in the back of my mind, I was thinking about, I need to be at work. So I wasn't really fully, uh, like I said, engaged on the task at hand. And, you know, I ended up having surgery that same night. So, you know, good luck to Luke Keekley as he has decided to hang up his cleats for good. I know he's had a, quite a few concussions in his career and, you know, we pray that all is well and his physical ability, and good luck with everything that he does in his future endeavors. Now, getting into the show, talking about the national championship, we see uh, the LSU Tigers, how they are the new national champions with their 42-25 victory over the Clemson Tigers. You know, I think this game eventually, um, Clemson felt the pressure of not just LSU's offense, but LSU's quick strike offense. I mean, you you see the the quick touchdown that that Chase had and Burrow when they finally connected on that deep ball. I believe it was like a fifty two yarder that got them on the board. Now that put pressure on 
Clemson immediately. Now, you would think from a defensive standpoint, but I think it was more from the offensive standpoint of how are they going to keep up? If this is how LSU is going to score, how are we going to keep up? And if you look at the first three scores of the game for both teams, LSU took 15 plays, 232 yards, five minutes of time possession for three touchdowns. Clemson had 18 plays for 203 yards, seven minutes and 13 seconds, and it resulted in two touchdowns and one field goal. So Clemson had more plays, fewer yards, and longer time of possession, and was still trailed, um, you know, from that standpoint with three touchdowns by LSU. Clemson had two touchdowns in the field goal, and Clemson had more plays, fewer yards, and longer time of possession. And, you know, I think about – I've always been a gamer playing PlayStation growing up. I've always had some sort of system, whether it was Nintendo, Sega, uh, like I said, now it's PlayStation 4. But growing up playing against my good friend Jake Everidge, uh, you know, we played Madden against each other. We played college football. And I know Jake's mentality. Like, if you get up on him, on him early, you get him down by two touchdowns, he completely abandons the running game. He starts going for it on fourth and on fourth down, even if it's it's on his on thirty three yard uh, yard line, like in the second quarter, and you still have another half left to play. He'll start going for onside kicks. I mean, he completely gets into quick strike mode and has to keep up offensively because he know with me, I'm going to move the ball and I'm going to have productive. Uh, productive you know drives offensively and i'm laughing as i'm talking about it as i'm thinking about some of the the good moments we've had playing against each other so that's why i feel like clemson felt in this game because as soon as lsu went up two scores at 35 to 25 in the third quarter this immediately took travis etienne out of the game because clemson's offensive coordinator tony elliott chose to go with four and five wide sets and completely abandon the running game and i think this really played in lsu's favor because Etienne was running with so much force, LSU couldn't really stop him early on. He had a, a good game statistically, and I think that's, like I said, LSU with that quick strike ability, one play touchdown type deal with you know Jamar Chase, and he's getting 52 yards here, 56 there, 43 there, uh, you know, with, with A.J. Terrell and coverage, as we'll talk about that later. I think that really put pressure, not necessarily on Clemson's defense, but on Clemson's offense. Now, there were a few things that I mentioned in last week's show that played out similar to my prediction. Here's the first. For LSU, I believe at some point you're going to see the Tigers of LSU come out in their five-wide, empty set with quarterback with a quarterback draw by Joe Burrow. I've seen this all season long. Uh, Joe Brady likes to call it. And the, around the 10, 15-yard uh, yard line when they're driving – you'll see them go empty. And when you see that, expect that QB draw. Now, it didn't come at the end of the game as I predicted, but it did result in a touchdown. As soon as I saw Joe Burrow come out in that five-wide empty set, I was like, here comes the QB draw. Here it is. And even to the point where LSU called a timeout, and I was like, please don't change it. I know you, I know you guys are doing that QB draw. Stay with that same play call. And so they came out of the timeout. And sure enough, like it was the QB draw that Joe Burrow got in with I think it was a three-yard touchdown was the official uh, official call in the stats. So I wasn't surprised at all. I've seen that draw over and over this year. And like I said, when they get around the 5, 10, 15-yard uh, goal line situation, they're going to come out in, in, in a five-wide empty set and they're going to run that QB draw as Joe Burrow can, you know, make plays with his feet just uh, just as well as his arm also. Now, 
that touchdown got LSU back in the game earlier in the second quarter to make it 17-14. And honestly, before that touchdown, I was getting a little nervous for the Tigers of LSU. I was kind of concerned about my prediction to pick LSU, and I was like, man, did I did I make the wrong decision? I even text my brother Antoine and my cousin Jeremy. I was like, okay, did you uh, – who did y'all pick before the game? And uh, my brother Antoine didn't respond at the time, but my cousin Jeremy was like, he picked LSU. And so, you know, we held on with that pick and it kind of made us, you know, feel more comfortable as the game went on. But I'm, I'll be honest, at that moment, I got a little nervous that LSU uh, may not be able to pull it out the way they were looking early on in that game. Now, here is the second point I mentioned last week that also held true. The Buckeyes held Justin Ross to six catches for 47 yards. They held T. Higgins to four catches for 33 yards, and they held Amari Rodgers to only one catch for 38 yards. Now, if this group of receivers, which combined for 11 catches and 118 yards against Ohio State, if they have that same production against LSU, they're going to get blown out the water. I mean, this game won't even be close. And that's exactly what happened is this Clemson Tiger bunch was blown out of the water due to that lack of wide receiver production that I spoke about against Ohio State. The same thing carried over against LSU as Justin Ross had five catches for 76 yards, T. Higgins had three catches for 52 yards, and Amari Rodgers had two catches for only eight yards. That was a combined total of 10 catches, 136 yards, and zero touchdowns. Jamar Chase outperformed the entire Clemson trio with nine catches, 221 yards, and two touchdowns that should have been three. He dropped that third one uh, that would have been a nice catch and a nice play that I know Burrow uh, would like to add to his, you know, <laughs> his amazingly fantastic career year that he had at LSU down in Baton Rouge. But Jamar Chase let that third one get away. Now, this this was kind of what I've alluded to is that that production by Clemson and their trio, their playmakers at the wide receiver position, they had to show up because, like I said, LSU was going to score. They know LSU is going to score. They're going to put up points. Joe Burrow ended up throwing for 60 touchdowns this year, I believe it was. Like, this guy is, is one of the best ever to play the game. And so Clemson knew what they were going against defensively, but I believe their counterparts uh, – LSU's counterparts offensively with Trevor Lawrence and Etienne and Ross and Higgins and Rodgers, they knew that they had to keep up with the LSU Tigers from an offensive standpoint as well. Now, this is the final thing I mentioned during my national championship preview leading into Monday night's game. Now, the determining factor for me in this game, which I believe will probably ultimately decide the outcome of the game, is the secondaries for both teams. Whichever defensive back group that can contain the opposing wide receivers the best will win this game. Now, going into that national championship game, Clemson's pass defense was ranked number one in the nation. But sometimes your good isn't good enough. When offensive coordinator for LSU, Joe Brady, decided to spread the defense with four and five wide sets, it forced Clemson to play a lot of man coverages. And from that moment... A.J. Terrell was toast, 
and Jamar Chase was the butter. I mean, he he was on fire that night. Uh, Jamar Chase won the Fred Bolitnikoff Award winner that uh, goes to the best receiver each year. Uh, this guy is amazing. I remember watching them earlier this year when they play in Vanderbilt, a game they put up 66 points, and they were just having their way in the first quarter. And I know it's Vanderbilt. People may say, well, you know, Vanderbilt isn't a strong team in the SEC, but it was just a way that it was effortless I hadn't seen LSU play that way as far as making plays in the passing game that they did uh, when I seen in that game against the Commodores. But like I said, Jamar Chase, you know, had a phenomenal game. He had an outstanding year with 20 touchdowns. And A.J. Terrell was responsible for Jamar Chase in Monday night's game. And exactly what he did was chase him all night. I mean, this is a cornerback that's really good. A.J. Terrell is projected to go in the first round. He may slide into the second but no further than the second round for sure. And, you know, prior to that national championship game, he didn't allow more than 60 yards in a game against him uh, all season. So, like I said, A.J. Terrell is no joke. It's not like, you know, Jamar Chase was, was going against Scooby-Doo and Shaggy or something like that. Like He was going against some of the best cornerbacks in secondary and a very experienced group too. Like Terrell is, I think he's a junior. Tanner Muse is a senior. Great safety back there. Uh, Kayvon Wallace as well. I mean, this was a good secondary. But like I said, when Joe Brady decided to open up and go four wide and, and five wide sets, it forced Clemson to play a lot of man coverages. And, you know, that receiving core for LSU was that much better than Clemson's uh, defensive back. Now, conversely, LSU's secondary was outstanding. I mean, we talked about Grant Delpit, who won the Jim Thorpe Award that's given to the best defensive back in the nation. You speak on Derek Stingley Jr., an outstanding freshman in the in the backfield there, or the defensive secondary, I should say. Uh, you know, Kerry Vincent Jr., I spoke on. I mean, even the linebackers with Patrick Queen and, and Chase on, they did a great job playing the pass and coming up and making plays in the run game also. So this secondary, like I mentioned, that would be the difference whoever – Whichever secondary group had the better performance would win this game, and that that held true. I mean, Trevor Lawrence completed less than 50% of his passes going 18 of 37 for 234 yards and zero touchdowns. Well, there's no way going into this game you would tell me that Trevor Lawrence would not have a touchdown pass. And so, like I said, that secondary really held held their own. They met the challenge that Clemson posed being the defending champions and so uh you know that was really the deciding factor as i predicted in last week's show now lsu's amazing offensive coordinator joe brady left for the same position with the carolina panthers you know we spoke on luke keekley and how he abruptly retired from the panthers well they kind of get uh i'm not gonna say a blessing in disguise, like nothing like that. But it's just a, a kind of softens the blow. You lose one of the best linebackers in the league, but you do get one of the young, innovative minds to be the new call, uh, play caller uh, for your NFL franchise. Now, this pressure will slide over to S- Steve Insminger to keep this new LSU passing philosophy alive as the Tigers are now celebrating their first title since 2007 and we're in our next season as the defending champions. Now, when we return, we're going to talk about the NFC and the AFC Conference Championship games. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Joy FM Sports. It's more than a game.
Welcome back to The Sweet Spot. I'm your host, Corey Bradley, as we recap the national championship between LSU and Clemson. Now it's sliding over to the NFL playoff matchups that we have this weekend as the two games will determine who's playing in the Super Bowl this year. First, we're going to talk about the Tennessee Titans and the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, in that Chiefs-Texans game, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like nothing is going your way? Because that's exactly how the Kansas City Chiefs felt going against the Houston Texans earlier in that game. On the first drive, the Chiefs had a blown coverage, with, which resulted in a 54-yard touchdown from Deshaun Watson to Kenny Stills, put the Texans up 7-0. Next, Kelsey, Travis Kelsey, the tight end for the Chiefs, dropped the third down pass. Very sure-handed guy. They had some early third, round, third down drops in that game that was very uncharacteristic of this Kansas City offense that we've grown to love and enjoy watching their highlights every single week. So Travis Kelsey dropped the ball on third down. Very next play, Barkevius Mingo blocked a punt. Lonnie Johnson Jr. scoops it up and takes it in for a touchdown. Texans are up 14-0. Next, next uh, mistake by the Chiefs that kind of kept the ball rolling for the Texans was Tyreek Hill. Tyreek Hill, outstanding receiver, outstanding returner. I remember when he was at West Alabama, my cousin Dresden Williams uh, played on that team and was a teammate of Tyreek Hill as well. And I remember being at the game, Tyreek Hill is getting ready to receive a punt. My cousin Dresden was like, Corey, watch. He's about to run this back. He's going to take this punt back. Watch it. And sure enough, Tyreek Hill fielded the punt, went up the sideline, and was gone. I mean, I was just, just in awe. And my cousin Dresden was so uh, just elated. He was like, Corey, I told you, man. I told you. I told you he was going to run it back. And it was just – it was pretty cool, like I said, to see that talent at that level. Uh, and he's how he's carried that over to the NFL and is doing the same thing uh, just as if he was still playing in college. I mean, Tyreek Hill is definitely a joy to watch as I know many fans – uh, like I said, enjoy seeing him every single week. Uh, all the plays and that blazing and just God-given speed that he has is really, you know, really exciting to see. So Tyreek Hill muffed the punt. Texans recover. Two plays later, Deshaun Watson finds Daniel Fells in the end zone for another touchdown. Houston is up 21 to nothing over the Kansas City Chiefs. Fast forward a little bit. Texans are up 24 to 7. And the Texans attempt a fake punt from their own 31-yard line. Why? You're up 24-7. You have the lead. You have momentum. Why would you do anything that would jeopardize you losing that momentum on the road in Arrowhead, which is we know is one of the toughest places to play, especially in this cold January weather. Now, when you take a risk or do something that's out of the ordinary you have to think of the consequences if it's not converted. Because if that risk is too big, then don't do it. I mean, there was no reason for the Texans to kind of think, uh, you know, let's let's try a fake punt from my own 31-yard line. You're up by three scores. Like, you don't need to do anything that would give the Chiefs any kind of hope if you don't convert. Now, that reminded me of the Patriots and Colts years ago, the fourth and two game where Belichick decided to go for it from their own 28-yard line. And I know what he's thinking. You convert this with two minutes left, you win the game. But, like I said, you got to think of the consequences if you don't convert it. You don't get it. Peyton Manning has the ball right there at the 28-yard line. So, 
I'm a, if I had the choice, I'm going to punt it every time and make Peyton Manning, who is one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. Some people say he is the best. I'm going to make him drive the length of the field. If they're going to beat us, which they're down 34-28, I'm going to make them drive the length of the field. They have to score a touchdown in two minutes and convert the extra point as well to win this game. So, and I know quite a few Patriots, uh, former players, Teddy Bruschi and Rodney Harris, and they both, you know, criticized Belichick for that decision. And I was glad that they were honest about that decision because a lot of times, you know, we'll see uh, Patriots and they'll, and not necessarily Patriots, but just teammates and former coaches and players, they stick up for one another because uh, they're ties to the organization. But Belichick made their own decision. Bill O'Brien made their own decision here. That failed trick play on, uh, on that fake punt resulted in a Mahomes-Travis-Kelsey touchdown that got the Chiefs back in at 24-14. On the ensuing kickoff, Houston fumbles the ball. A few plays later, Mahomes finds Travis-Kelsey for another touchdown. Now it's 24-21. The Chiefs are only down by three points. And that was three touchdowns in three minutes and 24 seconds. So you're talking about three minutes and 24 seconds of game time. The, the Chiefs have scored three touchdowns. They're only down by three points, and it's a brand-new ball game. Patrick Mahomes would end up throwing four touchdowns in that second quarter, three of them to Travis Kelsey, and he became the second player in postseason history to throw four touchdowns in a quarter, with the first player doing it was Doug Williams for the Redskins in Super Bowl twenty two. Now, this game came back, and it reminded me of the 44-10 lead that Texas A&M had over UCLA a couple years ago where the Bruins came back to win 45 to 44 one of the most improbable um come from behind wins we've seen in college football history I remember watching that game and they were just dominating UCLA in every facet of the game I changed it and started watching Virginia Tech in West Virginia and I remember seeing on the bottom ticker of UCLA kind of steadily climbing back and I think they eventually got down uh, it was 44 31 and I'm like this is a ball game again, so I changed it back and and watched the rest of that UCLA comeback. Now, another game that this Chiefs-Houston um, Texans game reminded me of was Auburn's comeback win in 2010 over Alabama, 28-27. They call it the comeback. You know, this is the game where the Tigers are uh, striving for a national championship, and they're down 24-0 in Tuscaloosa, where we know how hard it is to play there, especially during the Nick Saban era. But this is uh this is kind of one of those games that reminded me of you know of, of that game back in 2010 when the Tigers came back to win that game by one point beating the Crimson Tide. Now speaking of the Crimson Tide, in September 2007, Alabama trailed Arkansas 21 to nothing in the first quarter, and I remember being at uh, like a local restaurant watching the game. And it was a packed house, and you know like I said, being an Auburn fan, and you know especially. You know, 13 years ago, I really didn't like Alabama. I uh, have a lot more respect for them now. But I was just grinning and enjoyed every bit of Arkansas being up, you know, 21-0 in the first quarter. Well, the Crimson Tide stormed back and won that game 41-38 to on that Saturday night SEC's thriller. And that was Nick Saban's first year. And, uh, you know, he's had tremendous success ever since uh, he's got to Tuscaloosa. Now, it may not be probable as those situations I've just just gave you examples of. But anything is possible. Like I said, it's not probable that Alabama would have came back to beat Arkansas, that Auburn would come back and beat Alabama being 24 down on the road. And it's not, it, you know, it wasn't probable that the Chiefs would come back and beat the Texans, but they did. So, like I said, anything 
as possible. I don't care what the situation is. It's it's not over until it's over. And I'm you know I'm coaching the youth basketball team. I try to get them to understand it as well. Like you got to play through the tape. You know you got to run through the tape. The game is not over until it's triple zero and a winner has been decided. Now. It also wasn't probable that the Titans would beat the Patriots. It wasn't probable that they would beat Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. And then probably most people would say it's not probable that they would beat the Chiefs, but it is possible. And that's why we play the game. But I'll tell you, the Titans will need a lot more from their very good defense and their starting quarterback. Because Ron Tannehill against the Patriots only had 72 yards, one touchdown, one interception. He completed 8 of 15. That's not going to get it done. But I said that going into the Ravens, that wouldn't get it done either, and it did because against Baltimore, he only had 88 yards and two touchdowns, completing 7 of 14 of his attempts. But this is a brand-new team, and like I've said, it, I picked the Titans to lose uh, in their first week. I picked the Titans to lose in the second week, and here they are one game away from the Super Bowl. Now, they're going against this Kansas City team with Patrick Mahomes, and we've talked about how good he is, and we've seen how good he is. And former MVP, um, this guy is just one of the best. I was reading a story the other day about his dad, Pat Mahomes, who Pat Mahomes Sr., I guess I should say. He was talking about how he was coaching his, his son Patrick in baseball, and they were really beating that team really bad. So Patrick Mahomes is like, I'm going to go, home. I'm gonna go uh, to the plate and hit left-handed. And he hit left-handed and, and smacked it clear over the fence. And his dad was like, that's when I knew this kid is very special. Now, getting back to the game – Andy Reid, his teams have been known to come up short in conference championship game, going back to his days as the Philadelphia Eagles uh, head coach. And so this is not a given. Like I said, we've seen his teams kind of lose it at this stage of the playoffs, even if they're clearly favored to win. Even last year, they came up short against the New England Patriots, had every opportunity to beat them. Uh, D4 jumped off sides, and it was an interception on that same play that would have sealed it to send Kansas City to the Super Bowl. But like I said, that penalty negated that interception, and the Patriots went on to beat the Rams last year in the Super Bowl. Now, although Henry has had a, a great run this postseason, pun intended, I believe the run for the Titans comes to a halt in Arrowhead as I have Kansas City moving on to the Super Bowl, and it will be their first appearance since January 11, 1970. Now, that's the AFC matchup. The NFC matchup is going to be one of those exciting, thrilling games as well as we have two teams with the Packers and the 49ers squaring off. This is a big rivalry. These teams have been known to play against each other uh, time and time again in the postseason, especially during that 90s kind of run where the Packers were really good, the Niners are really good, the Cowboys are really good. The NFC always came down between those three teams. Now, Personally, I haven't. I have never liked Green Bay. I did not like them at all growing up. I remember being like in fourth grade. There was this another guy named Jack Frazier, huge Packers fan. He had this green and yellow Green Bay fan, that, uh, Green Bay football that he would bring to PE every day, and we had to play with his football. He would always have his Packers shirt on, and he would pick his buddies who were Packers fans, and you know they would implement being you know, uh, like Antonio Freeman and, and Brett Favre and Dorsey Levins and uh, try to, you know, be like those guys as those were the stars back for the Packers back in the 90s. So I didn't like Green Bay. I didn't I didn't like him. You know, Jack Frazier played a huge part of that. Brett Favre, I couldn't stand him. But, you know, this is kind of one of those games that you bring back some of those memories that you had 
if you grew up watching the Packers, liking them or disliking them. And probably the same for the 49ers if you're on the other side. Now, my very first football jersey was a Steve Young jersey. So I've always had an eye on the 49ers. I remember Rex Ruiz, who was a part of uh, the show earlier this uh when we kind of first getting started and we talked about the 49ers and, you know, he was impressed with my knowledge of San Francisco football. And I was telling him, I was like, man, San Francisco is my first love. Like, this is where it started. Like I said, Steve Young, his first football jersey I had. I was a huge Jerry Rice fan. So I've always kept up with San Francisco um, through their up and down years since the early 90s. Now, when you think about this game, you think about the catch two. The catch two we know the catch one was with Dwight Clark and Joe Montana, but catch two was in 1998 in the NFC wildcard game where prior to that game, Green Bay beat San Francisco three straight years in the playoffs, twice in the divisional round and once in the NFC championship game where these two teams will meet this Sunday. In that game, 49ers trailed 27-23 to with eight seconds left, and Steve Young found Terrell Owens across the middle Well. Terrell Owens held onto the ball after suffering a a gruesome hit. I mean, it was Terrell Owens said that was probably the toughest, hardest hit that he received playing football. And what a moment to come up in the clutch to score uh, with three seconds left to beat your rival and send the Packers home. Now, another matchup between these two teams was in the 2012 NFC Divisional Round where Colin Kaepernick threw for 263 yards, two touchdowns, and he also had 181 rushing yards with two touchdowns. So that's 444 yards total. Like, people forget how good Kaepernick was. I enjoy watching him play every Sunday. I hate don't get a chance to see him play now. But, uh, like, I enjoyed watching Kaepernick play when he was the quarterback for that 49ers team with Jim Harbaugh being the coach. And that would be the year where the Niners would go on to the Super Bowl and would suffer that heartbreaking loss to the Baltimore Ravens. Now, for this year's rivalry matchup, San Francisco, they beat the Packers 37-8 earlier this year at Levi's Stadium, the same place as this weekend's game. And, you know, this is going to be a good matchup. I mean, you look at Green Bay with first-year head coach Matt LaFleur one game away from getting to the Super Bowl. He was the offensive coordinator for the Titans last year, and here he is in his first year just having immediate success with the Green Bay Packers. Now, that defense is led by Jair Alexander, great cornerback, came from Louisville. I remember watching him against Florida State when they put up like 70, 70 on Florida State that Saturday, and that's when Jair Alexander caught my attention. Is his great play in the secondary, but also his ability to run, return punts as well. And then the Packers signed the Smith uh, the Smith boys, Zazarius Smith and Preston Smith in free agency. It have been huge pickups for them. Montrevious Adams from Auburn. You have Kevin King and Blake Martinez, a linebacker from Stanford as well. Offensively, you know, everything starts with Aaron Rodgers. But not just that one Aaron. You also have Aaron Jones, a running back, who had 16 touchdowns and has really become one of the better backs over the last couple seasons. Devontae Smith, Alan Lazard. Marquez Valdez Scanting, Scantling, I should say, Valdez Scantling, and Jimmy Graham, uh, who is you know, a lot of people have forgotten. He had his great years in, in New Orleans, but you know, this is a Green Bay team that will definitely be a force to be reckoned with. Now, for the 49ers, you know, we've talked about how good their defense is. They're second in total defense. I mean, we talked about their depth in last week's show with D. Ford and, you know, Quan Alexander, Solomon Thomas, Eric Armstead, DeForest Buckner, Dre Greenlaw, Fred Warner. I mean, 
Nick Bosa, like, he almost left him out. And so that's how deep their front seven is. Richard Sherman holding down the back end and the secondary. Their defense is amazing. So we know this is going to be a challenge for that defense going against Aaron Rodgers and his ability to make plays with his arm and his feet. And offensively, you know, we talk about Kyle Shanahan, his ability to to just keep the defense off guard with his play calling. I mean, he does a lot of misdirections, a lot of you'll see the same formation, but he does something completely different out of it that he hasn't shown you earlier in that game. I mean, even to the point where, I'm, like I said, I'm a gamer. I play Madden 20, and I'm running Kyle Shanahan's offense. So uh, I enjoy watching him play, uh, watching him call the plays for that 49ers team. And they have so many playmakers, as we've talked about, with Debo Samuel, Emmanuel Sanders, uh, Tevin Coleman. You know, you have Kendrick Bourne. I mean, there's so many Kyle Juszczyk is a fullback. They'll get him involved in the in the screen game as well. And, you know, of course, you know, you have your, your guy George Kittle, the best tight end in the game. But the question is going to come down to Jimmy Garoppolo. This is a matchup between Garoppolo and Rodgers. You don't expect Rodgers to make many mistakes. So for the 49ers to move on to the Super Bowl, Garoppolo has to take care of the ball. I know people are going to make and blow it up as this is that matchup. This is his chance to prove that he is one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Can Jimmy G take care of the ball, be accurate, make smart decisions, and not get rattled under that Green Bay Packer uh, pressure that I'm sure Mike Pettin will bring? Now, I'm picking the Niners to win. I'm hoping they'll win, as you've heard my disdain for Green Bay going up. We'll see how it turns out, but I'm predicting a Niners-Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl. I think that would be an amazing matchup watching that Chiefs offense go against that 49ers defense. I'm looking forward to this weekend. I know you all are, too. I'm hoping that's what it is, San Francisco, Kansas City. And, you know, we'll, we'll let it all play out in a few weeks on February the 2nd. Now, when we return, we're going to talk about some huge news that came on the baseball diamond, especially down here in the south in Alabama. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Joy FM Sports. It's more than a game. Welcome back to The Sweet Spot as we continue today's episode. As we've talked about the national championship. We've previewed the AFC-NFC Conference Championship games this weekend. But how about this news that came out with the Atlanta Braves? And just kind of give you a quick recap of what I talked about in my earlier shows. I gave a top three priority list for the Braves this offseason. Number three was replacing Brian McCann, the catcher who retired kind of the leader for that pitching staff and uh, a very respected guy in that clubhouse. They replaced him with Travis Darno, and I have a big X next to that because I don't think you did. A, they did a, a, a good job replacing Brian McCann. Travis Darno is good with the bat, not necessarily good behind the plate. I don't think that's enough to solidify losing Brian McCann to retirement. Number two was getting that starting rotation together. Who were going to be your guys for that next uh, upcoming season? As they let Julio Teron walk, I agree with that. Dallas Keuchel moved on to the White Sox. They replaced him with Cole Hamels. 
who I like Cole Hamels. Cole, Cole Hamels has you know, always been a, a very solid pitcher throughout his career. He's getting up in, up in age. He signed a one-year deal, I believe, for like $18 million. But he is a guy, if he's healthy, you know, he, you can rely on him. So having Cole Hamels and Max Fried and Mike Soroka, uh, Fulton Nevich will be back. And I think they'll give Sean Newcomb a chance to earn a spot in the rotation too. So did did they solidify that starting rotation? I gave them a check mark. Uh, it's kind of a push. I think it's slightly better from last year, uh, just because, like I so said, you don't have to worry about Tehran. But it still comes back to Fulton Nevich. Is will he continue what he left off as far as his uh, when he would sit down in AAA halfway through the season? He really had a strong. Um, kind of stint in that second half part of the year that led over into the playoffs as well. So I gave them a check mark for that number two. But number one, the number one objective for the Braves was to resign Josh Donaldson. And they did not get this done. As we know, Josh Donaldson has signed with the Minnesota Twins. Uh, Josh Donaldson is a former Auburn guy. He's from the state of Alabama. He's from this area. You know, this is this was an opportunity for the Braves to show, you know, we're in for now. We have great pieces coming up, but we're in for now. And so, you know, Josh Donaldson was coming off that injury a couple of years ago. The Braves agreed to a one-year $23 million deal with him last year, and he proved that he was he could still play ball. I mean, I had no idea how good he was defensively. I knew he was very good offensively, and he could hit the ball out of the world. But I had no idea that he was such a stud at the hot corner at third per- at the third place position. Now, like I said, they agreed with that one year twenty three million dollar deal last year with the Braves and Donaldson. And that's exactly what he'll be making with the twins as annually he'll be making twenty three million a year in his four year ninety two million dollar contract that has a chance to be increased to $100 million overall if the Twins pick up that fifth-year option. And I know a lot of uh, the talks where the Braves didn't want to give him that fourth year. They want, didn't want to throw that money at him that Donaldson would be requiring. And and I mentioned that in my earlier show that this is Donaldson's last chance to get that long, that last long contract of at least four years because, like I said, he's up in age. You know, he's uh, – kind of reaching the end of his career but coming off the season he had last year he definitely earned a four-year deal and so if the Braves didn't get it to him which they I guess they weren't willing to meet the the salary requirements the Minnesota Twins they they did and now he'll be playing uh in the Twin Cities now this deal is the second biggest deal for a player 33 or older like I mentioned Josh Donaldson's age you know, and it was, I understand a little bit of hesitation from the Braves of, like I said, this is the second biggest deal for a player of his age to to receive that kind of contract. But the way that the Braves kind of elevated their game last year, Donaldson was a huge part of that. He was the cleanup hitter hitting behind Freddie Freeman and protecting Freddie Freeman because if, if you don't pitch to Freeman, you got Donaldson coming up next and I've seen it before. Donaldson hit a home run because you, you intentionally walked Freddie Freeman and Donaldson made you pay. So, you know, I understand uh, from a Braves standpoint a little bit, but I think this was a big deal that they let him get away because, you know, honestly, I thought the longer that Josh Donaldson waited, I thought he would resign with Atlanta uh, just because 
we're getting closer and closer to spring training. And I'm like, okay, if he signs elsewhere, he has to relocate. He and his family, and they had to move other things and change addresses. And so, like I said, we were. I talked with Broxton Gannon, our social media director for the Joy FM Sports. You know, he's a big Atlanta Braves fan. We talk every Sunday. I'm always asking him at church, man, what do you think about Donaldson? What is it going to be? And um, like I said, the longer it got, I thought maybe he would stay in Atlanta just because he didn't have to worry about relocating. But he is now a new member of the Minnesota Twins a team that had the fourth best record at 101 and 61. So you add in a guy like Josh Johnson. I know they lost they lost Jonathan Scope. They lost CJ Cron who signed with the Tigers. But you picking up a guy like Josh Donaldson with his just you know, some guys we talk about having that it factor and just how they're such a plus for the clubhouse. Donaldson is that guy. He's gonna give you that that never quit attitude, never die attitude on the field and off the field as well. So I think the Twins will enjoy having him in Minnesota. Now the question is, what's next for Atlanta? How do they fill that third base vacancy that Donaldson has loved joining the Twins? Is it Austin Riley and a Johan Camargo platoon where Austin Riley's right-handed, he'll hit against left-handed pitching? Johan Camargo's a switch hitter. But he could be your left-handed batter against right-handed pitching. Will they use that as one of their options? Or do they make a blockbuster trade and acquire Chris Bryant from the Chicago Cubs, one of the best young third basemen in the league, uh, former MVP. We all know how good Chris Bryant has been uh, since he's entered the league. And then you also have the rumors of the Rockies shopping Nolan Arenado as well. And the Braves' name has come up with that. So I think we'll see some of these dominoes fall into place now that Donaldson has made his move. What do the Braves do to replace him in that lineup and at that third base position? Now, when we return, we're going to close with today's Triple C segment. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the sweet spot as we prepare for today's Triple C segment, Corey's Closing Comments. And this is what I want to share with you today. I believe we can learn a lot from sports. I mean, sometimes it can feel as if everything is going against you. But if you keep grinding, if you keep doing the right thing, they will eventually turn around in your favor. Sometimes in an instant. I mean, in this show, we've talked about the Chiefs coming back to beat the Texans. We talked about Auburn's come from behind winning against Alabama. The Crimson Tides come from behind victory against Arkansas back in September 2007. But I think people forget the difference between probable and possible. Now, it may not be probable in some of these situations to come back and win, but anything is possible. Always remember, whatever you're going through in life, that with God, all things are possible. And there is nothing that our God can't do. And always remember, there's nothing better than being in the sweet spot. Stay in the sweet spot for the Joy FM Sports Facebook page. This has been a presentation of the Joy FM Sports. It's more than a game.